Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness to pray and to rest before he began his public ministry. This year during Lent, join Pastor Hook to pray and rest as we learn about our calling to be a life-changing connection to Christ in our world. So we are in our episode 8, Life-Changing Connection. And if you'll remember yesterday, we talked a little bit about the two styles of organizing things so that you could propagate the church. Because the way that Jesus propagated the church was he selected 12 men and they lived with him for three years and then he left and they were tasked with propagating the church, following the Great Commission, go and make disciples by baptizing and by teaching. But we have a great other person who did a phenomenal job of spreading early Christianity, and that was the Apostle Paul. He did not gather around him 12 people and spend three years with them. No, Paul was much more industrious. He was much more motivated. He wanted to go on missionary journeys, and so he went on three missionary journeys. He planted churches. He would go into a community. He would gather people together. He would organize them. He would create a church, and then he would leave And if you heard problems about the church because of the leadership or whatever, then he would send a letter back to those churches. And we have several of those letters by Paul to talk about various issues that arose in some of those churches. And from those letters, we actually get some great theology, Pauline, what we call Pauline theology, about some of the early church problems and some of our problems today as a congregation. Because if you're going to organize people... To, in, a, in a congregation, it probably looks more like what the Apostle Paul had than it looks like what um, Jesus did or what maybe Peter did. I, I always call it Peter because I just assume that as a disciple, he probably did the Jesus method, but we have no idea. Um, all we know is that Peter got up and preached a great sermon at Pentecost and 3,000 people got baptized that day and then we moved into the early church. So those are the two models that we have in Scripture, kind of this one-on-one or one-on-12 model for three years, and then we have the Pauline model where he goes and actually you know, creates congregations, organizations, structure, deacons, elders, presbyters, overseers, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, all that stuff. All that stuff is what Paul you know, developed to propagate Christianity. But if you'll notice, Jesus didn't really... Uh, say it had to be one way or the other. I think for Jesus, the method of getting there is much less important than the fact that it gets there, that the church evolves and grows and more people come to the, uh, to, to the kingdom that Jesus talked about. So I guess what I'll do is then maybe just, uh, that's probably a good segue that after, after Jesus left in the early church and Peter preached his message, 3,000 people were baptized. Then we do get this great depiction of what the early church looked like. And, it's, and we looked at this yesterday. I just want to spend a little bit more time on it this morning. It's, uh, it's from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. It reads like this. They, this is the early Christians, right? The early church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. 
They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those that were being saved. So you just get this phenomenally wonderful picture of this beautiful family of God gathering together every day in the temple courts. They're devoting themselves to the apostle teaching, to fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer. They, they join together all their possessions. They help the poor. Life is just, just wonderful. Except that, except that the Lord is adding daily number to those that are being saved. I mean, if God could have just left it at the people that were meeting at that point, it would have been wonderful. But, but we, we have this great commission where it says, go make more disciples by baptizing and teaching. Now, Paul handled this by going out into the world and creating congregations. That's wonderful. But if you're in Jerusalem, pretty soon you get more and more people attracted to this group of people and things don't go very well. As a matter of fact, we know that because when we get to Acts chapter 6, just four chapters later, we have this issue. Beginning of verse 1 of chapter 6. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, which is good, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So I'll just stop right there. So it's going great, except that it sounds like now they've created organizations and structures in the Jerusalem church. And it seems like what they are doing, it's gone from meeting every day in the temple court to pulling all our possessions together and giving to everyone who had need. It sounds like the major, major emphasis now of the church by Acts chapter 6 is at least looking after widows and orphans. Um, Now, it doesn't say orphans here, but the leader of the Jerusalem church was James, and he wrote a book of the Bible called James. And in James, he says the greatest source of religion or the greatest true religion is looking after widows and orphans. So it doesn't say orphans, but, but we pretty much believe that it was widows and orphans, right? So the early church felt their calling was to basically pool resources together to look after widows and orphans. And that's a great thing. It's an awesome thing. That's what the church should do. Of course, I don't know how many widows and orphans we have today. And we actually have a lot of state and federal agencies that help in that area. But uh, if a church wanted to look after widows and orphans today, assuming they met all the governmental and federal regulations, got fingerprinted, uh, created an organization, an LLC, and created a nonprofit status so that you could pull your money together so people could claim it on their income taxes. Oh, and you have to rent office space because you can't really just do this without you know office space and an executive director. And you have to uh, figure out a way to market the fact that you're doing this for widows and orphans. And so you have to create marketing brochures. I mean, it, the list goes on and on. <laughs> All the stuff you got to do just to get food out to the widows and orphans. Oh, and then how do we interact with uh, our local food bank? Is that, do we just give the food to them and they distribute it to widows and orphans? Or do we partner with them? Or we do certain types of food or they do, I mean, it's just, it's very complicated today. Back then it was just, okay, we're going to gather together food. We're going to give it to the widows and orphans, except now we got a problem because the Hellenistic Jews were complaining that the Hebraic Jews were getting 
overlooked in the daily distribution of food. I'm not saying, you know, I'm not grateful, but I come here and I look and I think you're giving the, the Greek women a little bit more food than you are doing the, the Hebraic women. And of course, we know who's to blame, right? It's the apostles because the apostles are the one that's organizing this or distributing this and they're obviously got too much going on and so this isn't happening right. And so the 12, well, well, let's read and see what happens. Verse two, so the 12 apostles, this original 11 plus Matthias who was added on. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. <laughs> I feel their pain. <laughs> the apostles who are walking with Jesus feel it is their primary job to propagate the words of Jesus, to teach the words of Jesus, to tell the stories of Jesus. That's, I mean, that's their calling in life, right? Jesus said, okay, make disciples by teaching and baptizing. So you get the apostles out there, they teach and they baptize. Oh, they're doing the distribution of the food. But they really like teaching and baptizing. And uh, so they, they spend a lot more time teaching and baptizing and apparently a little bit less time distributing food. So they come up with a great solution. Uh, I think it's a phenomenal solution. Um, verse 3, So brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them, and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. That is fantastic. What a great thing to do. Awesome, awesome, awesome. I mean, they create organization. They create structure. It's like, listen, we can't do everything. So we're going to concentrate on the things that we can do, but we're going to turn some of this other stuff that could be done by other people to other people. And it goes great until they go and knock on Mary's door. You remember Mary. <laughs> the mother of Jesus, probably living in Jerusalem at the time. Maybe, I don't know. But I do know that that she was there at the foot of the cross and, and Jesus was there dying. And he looks at John and he looks at Mary and he says, Mary, this is your son. Son, this is your mother. And basically what we believe there was that John, I'm leaving, so you need to, don't leave my mother an orphan, okay? Don't leave her a widow. Uh, make sure you take care of her. And so John does, and actually he takes care of all the widows, and he does all these things until it's too much. Now he has to go knock on Mary's door and say, um, "I'm I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna start preaching more and, and distributing food less." And Mary's like, "But I'm the mother of Jesus. You can't do this to me." Um, I don't know what she did. I don't know if that that conversation even happened. But change is hard. I will tell you that once you start doing things one way and now you want to modify it and start doing it another way, that change is hard. So if there was that conversation about John and Mary and how it switches the distribution of the food, I'm sure it did not go over well. And the problem, I mean, so normally you might say, well, let's just wait till Mary dies and then we'll release John and he can start teaching the word. I mean, after all, he is much younger than Jesus. So he's got a lot of life left in him and he doesn't have to do this and <laughs> But in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, you know, they believe that Mary never actually died. She was just kind of assumed into heaven. But, and we're not sure when that happened or how that happened. But anyway, I'm going to leave that alone. That's just a historical fact. But the fact is, is that anytime you do change, it's difficult. It's extremely difficult. 
And but the early church, they pivoted, right? They they pivoted, they made a change, they did the change, and they moved forward. And the church continued to grow, which is a wonderful thing. Except how do you how do you I mean the initial part of the church, man, so much excitement. You have the spirit of Pentecost dancing, leaping on people's heads as tongues of fire. The, the spirit is alive and working and drawing people closer to the church. But once you create organization and structure, it really does, um, it kind of fights against this spontaneous spirit thing. I, I mean, I'm not saying that spirits can't work in organizations that are, you know, have a lot of organization and structure, but you know, being a pastor, I understand you. Know, I might have a sermon series plan. I actually have all the sermons planned out to the end of the year right now. And if I follow that organization structure, that's great. But what happens if I'm in my morning walk with Jesus and he lays it on my heart that this is something that you really need to talk to your people about? Well, the organization structure has to happen a year in advance so that I can get all the pieces in place you know the band and the music and the and the the readings and the and uh, you know we're adding some stage effects and that has to I mean all this stuff has to be in place if we want to do something special for service to reinforce the message you just got to get order and structure in there but but if God lays it on my heart to say no we're not going to do that I really feel like you should do this should I say well God sorry you should have told me that six months ago and then I could have put it in the plan or. Do I say, hey, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Maybe it is not good to be talking about, you know, friendly kissing or, you know, the kiss of the kiss of peace or something. I don't know. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Maybe that shouldn't be part of the sermon series this, this month. Maybe we'll change it out. But so organization and structure fights against the spontaneity of the spirit that God does do. God, God will, if you spend time in God with prayer, in scripture, just in time with God, he will reveal things to you that, um, you know, I don't know if he's actively doing that or if he just brings things to you. I don't know. You know, I want to talk about that. But there are feelings and urgings and revealings that happen when you spend time with God that you can't ignore. You have to think about them at least. And sometimes it means going against the organizational structure to do something new. And so the early church, when they realized that the apostles couldn't do it all, then they started adding other people. And they did. They, they chose uh, seven. Is it seven men? Uh, so 12, the so brothers chose seven men among you. So they did. One of those was actually Stephen. And Stephen was martyred. But, and we have a ministry called Stephen Ministry. It's named after Stephen. And Stephen was a great. We actually call these people. In the early church, they didn't have a name for him right here because this is the early church. It doesn't get structure around it until Paul. But we eventually view these people, these seven men who are assisting the, the apostles in all this distribution, we call them deacons. And so we believe that Stephen was the first deacon, although he's not mentioned as a deacon here because they didn't have deacons back then. They just had seven men who helped the apostles, but they eventually become deacons. So this is great. This is awesome. Um, they, they did, uh, uh, well, I'll just continue reading. Um, this proposal pleased the whole group and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas of, from Antioch, 
a convert to Judaism, and they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So there's a little bit of commissioning going on. So the word of God spread, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So even here, man, it's just growing like gangbusters. It's so phenomenal. Everybody's happy. Except that as change happens, the group of people meeting in Jerusalem starts to increase. People who are following themselves, calling themselves Christians begins to increase. Disciples increase. People who are converts to the faith, all these people increase. And there's a problem with increase. And that is how do you maintain how do you maintain the relationships in a group? that become very, very tight over time and then allow other people into the group and incorporate them into these relationships. But the whole thing expands to the point where it just gets big and people start to complain, hey, it's this doesn't feel like when we were meeting in the temple courts, it felt so good and we were close-knit and we knew everybody. And now there's so many people. I don't even know who's a Christian, who's not a Christian anymore. I mean, I used to know every Christian in Jerusalem by face and recognize them. But now, I don't know anymore. And you can't stop, right? You can't just say, okay, we're done with Christianity. It's going to stay at this number and we're not going to get it. Because Jesus said, no, grow and multiply. But it's difficult because it means you got to do different things and look at different things. They... They were meeting originally in the temple courts. It does say that they started to meet in their homes. Maybe this is the beginning of the house churches and and those grew. And that's kind of from the, from the early documents, it appears that for the first 300 years, the house church was kind of the thing. That that's the solved the problem of intimacy and growth is that they would create a house church and that was not a bad way. And then maybe somebody in that house church says, well, I have a home. Let me start a house church. And so you commission one person, lay hands on them, and they go out and they create their own house church. And then it raises up people. And then maybe that's just a great, great way to do it. If you've ever been in a small group, though, you know how difficult that is. You know, if you're in a small group, uh, Jennifer and I have been in small groups all of our uh, <laughs> all of our Christian walk, except here at Christ Within Veil, but we we did have, we were involved in very many small groups um, that we loved and cherished, and those people are very, 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 very special to us. And when I got called out of Phoenix to to uh, do something in Denver with my business, um, you know, we had to leave that small group. We got to Denver. We joined another small group. Um, and then, you know, that one kind of split. Well, actually, the one in Phoenix split into two and the one in Denver actually split into two also because you can't stay static and you've got to be able to add people in. Uh, and if you've ever been part of that, you know that growing, you know, growing small groups is hard because people do not want to, they do not want to leave their small groups. And yet it, there is, there are times when you have to expand the number of, you know, these small groups meeting together and, uh. Well, we'll get into that later on. So, but this is what happened in the early church. But why is it so hard? Like, why is it? Because it's hard because you get comfortable with the people you get comfortable with. Um, there was actually a researcher that looked at this. Believe it or not, there's data behind this, which is so exciting for me because I'm a data person. There is a thing called, a thing called a Dunbar number. 
Have you ever heard of a Dunbar number? There was a researcher, uh, I'm not exactly sure his name. His last name is Dunbar. I'm not exactly sure what his first name is. Let's see if I can find it here. Um, uh, Robin Dunbar is his name, Robin Dunbar. And he did research looking at how big social groups get based upon brain size. How's that? <laughs> and actually, I just want to read to you a little bit out of this, out of this article. Uh, it's so fascinating. Uh, if you've ever been romantically rejected by somebody who just wanted to be friends, you may have delivered a version of this line. I've got enough friends already. Your implication, of course, being that people only have enough emotional bandwidth for a certain number of buddies. And this is an article from the BBC by Christine Rowe from October of 2019. It's called The Theory of Dunbar's Number Holds That We Can Only Really Maintain About 150 Connections at Once, But Is the tr Rule True in Today's World of Social Media? So I just read you the first paragraph. Let me read you the second paragraph. It turns out that that is not just an excuse. There are well-defined limits to the number of friends and acquaintances the average person can retain. But the question about whether these limits are the same in today's digital world, one in which it's common to have social media profiles or online forums with thousands of followers, is more complicated. According to the British anthropologist Robin Dunbar, the magic number is 150. Dunbar became convinced that there was a ratio between brain sizes and group sizes through his study of non-human primates. This ratio was mapped out using neuroimaging and observation of time spent on grooming and important social behavior of primates. Dunbar concluded that the size relative to the body of the neocortex, the part of the brain associated with cognition and language, is linked to the size of a cohesive social group. This ratio limits how much complexity a social system can handle. So let me just see if I can paraphrase this a little bit. He looked at brain sizes of the neocortex. He looked at various sizes from little tiny monkeys to big, to big apes. And he mapped that out and noticed that there was a pattern that the smaller the brain size, that, that the number of people that were in close interaction with them was small, it was smaller, but as it grew, it got larger, and he mapped this out. And, he, and then he extended this to humans. So Dunbar and his colleagues, I'm continuing to read, Dunbar and his colleagues applied this basic principle to humans, examining historical, anthropological, and contemporary psychological data about group sizes, including how big groups get before they split off or collapse. And they found remarkable consistency around the number 150. Um, yeah, according to, according to Dunbar and many researchers he influenced, this rule of 150 remains true for early hunter-gatherer societies as well as surprising array of modern groupings, offices, communes, factories, residential campsites, military organizations, 11th century English villages, and even Christmas card lists. Exceed 150 and a network is unlikely to last long or cohere well. One implication for the era of urbanization may be that to avoid alienation or tensions, city residents should find quasi-villages within their cities. <laughs> 
They don't say there, but it's quite possible that churches might also be on this list, right? Um, and then it, it goes on. The article basically, well, the article basically then concludes two things out of the article. First of all is that, uh, let's see if I can show this, the social interactions here, that um, they conclude that there's a thing called a Dunbar number. And they're, they're basically the part of the Dunbar number says that we're only, you can only have like about five loved ones in your life. Now, these are averages. Some may have a little bit more. Some may have, you know, a few less. But your really, really, really close loved ones, yeah, you can only have about five of them. And then as far as good friends, I mean, these are people that you can call at midnight and say, hey, can you help me change my tire? That's that's 15. And then 50 friends, these are people that would be among your Rolodex of people to go out with and have lunch if you're going to have lunch on a certain day. 150 meaningful contacts. And I would say this actually holds true with a with worship on Sunday morning, that, that there, and there's a thing... Well, we'll get into that. And then uh, 500 acquaintances, and then he says 1,500 people you can recognize. And so I believe that the Dunbar number, and other people have said this too, uh, although I can't remember exactly where I've read it, that, that a congregation also fights up against these numbers. Like if you look at congregational dynamics, there seems to be thresholds in congregations. And one of the thresholds is a congregation pretty much remains at 35 to 50. And you look across the United States, like 50% of the congregations are like that 35 to 50, and they can't seem to break free of that. And that's because these people, these 35 to 50 people are friends. And bringing somebody else into your congregation to become a friend, like you're going to put them in your Rolodex and you have lunch with them, <laughs> that's, uh, you know, you, you, you're limited. Uh, and then, then a congregation has another limit, which is 150 to 200. And some say it might even go to 250 or something like that. But it's this. It's meaningful contacts. You go to church on Sunday morning. You look around. You recognize everybody in that congregation. They're meaningful to you. You could go to any of them and just strike up a conversation with them if you wanted to because, because that's kind of expected and you'd be happy to do that. And then the next one is acquaintances, 500 acquaintances, which seems to be kind of another limit. It's like if you go to church on Sunday morning and you just don't recognize people, you get this uncomfortable feeling. Uh, and so a lot of churches stay, actually the vast majority of churches, I would say probably 90% of churches then never break through from this 150 to let's say 500 level uh, because it's there's just a lot of emotional resistance to doing that. And then, and then, the next level is 1500, which is kind of a mega church that that 1000 to 1500 where, you know, you go, but you see the same people day after day. So you feel comfortable with them and you might recognize them if you see them on the street and say, yeah, I've seen that person, uh, you know, in my in my church on Sunday morning. But once it gets over 150 and there are a lot of churches out there, uh, mega churches, well, some you have no idea. I mean, you simply have no idea. Does this person go to my church or not? I have no idea because I sit in section A and they sit in section Z and we've never seen each other. I mean, so these dynamics play into the whole idea of how you grow the number of disciples because we have to be sensitive to this fact. And I did some research a number of years ago. I looked at churches by size 
and came to the conclusion, this is so interesting, that the vast majority of churches, LCMS, we belong to Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, we're mainline Protestant church, that the vast majority of churches, their size, you could almost predict the size of the church based upon how many worship services they have. Because each worship service then becomes its own congregation of people that can be meaningful contacts, right? And so you have a church that has two worship services. Well, if they've got two worship services, they're probably in the neighborhood of, let's say, 150 to, um, what we've, you know, 150 to, say, three, 700, right? That somewhere in there is the range of how many people they're going to have. Uh, in in the Lutheran context, because we love our friendships, we love our you know knowing people. We're not big into having the big mega stuff and the big mega production stuff. We we more like the you know the one on one and the small group type of relationship stuff. The way that churches get away with this, if they want to grow larger, is that they have to create other opportunities for people to come together in groups that make sense. If you want to get larger than the 35 to 50, you have to have other things in the congregation that bring people together in small groups. And it might be small groups, it might be a quilting thing, it might be a Bible study, it might be a, a youth program or, you know, all these different programs, opportunities for people to meet with each other during the week. Because if, if it's over 50 on Sunday morning, you do not get that interaction on Sunday morning. Sunday morning is, is different. The purpose of Sunday morning is different. So, um, gosh, I've got so much more to say on this. I think I'm going to have to wait until tomorrow to say that. Um, so I went a little bit long. Apologize for that. Thank you for joining me today. Um, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Dear God, continue to guide us as we figure out how to be a church that loves one another intimately like you love us and yet continues to love the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen.